0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry defeating, circumstance defying happiness. Written by pastor and best selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: A chair is still a chair. (laughs) That's
0: the intro. Let's go.
1: Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. Powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and threads, actually, at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness. He has a very extensive bio. The man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check verified himself, the chairman of all chairs, Dr. Jamar
0: Tisby. What's going on, brother? Oh, these intros get more ridiculous every time, but I'll take it. I receive it. Uh, JamarTisby.substack.com, as always. Listen,
1: man, what type of chair do you prefer? Is it the metal chair? Is it the fellowship hall chair? Is it the chair with the white, you know, those kind of like, I don't even know what you call it, but those like white chairs that kind of got that little jut out on the side of it that kind of makes it hard to carry on the side. (laughs) Which one do you prefer? Because I'm going to tell you, we got to get our chairs ready.
0: Chairs on deck. Well, uh, you know, I'm old school as always. You know, the brown metal folding chairs. That's the one I'm used to. It's not, it's pretty unwieldy. But if somebody gets it, they get it like they're down. Y'all already
1: know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, I was itching on August 5th to talk about the chairs, and we had to wait. It's been a long time. We had to wait. We had to pause and come back around to talk about the Montgomery Riverfront Brawl, and a lot of people are calling this-
0: <laughs> The Boat Brawl. Yeah, the uh, Boat Brawl, like all the, the above. Alabama slammer. Like
1: So where were you when you <laughs> saw Aquaman? Where were you when you saw Scuba Gooding Jr.? Where were you when you saw the one that they call the water champion the black
0: the black swimmer (laughs) that was an incredible moment (laughs) Michael B Phelps
1: where were you Jamar where Uh, were you when you heard about the Montgomery brawl
0: you know I I I was late to the game like I saw it trending on social media and I was like what what is this because I think it was a Saturday or something I don't remember what I was doing but I got into the hashtags and I'm like oh my gosh this is a whole thing and then of course everything you've already been saying the nicknames the the memes the black twitter or x or whatever it was black social media was on one it,
1: it was black social media because this was probably our finest hour
0: <laughs>
1: this was this this was this was our finest hour this is when they play like um, in the United Negro College one, when they say "A mind is a terrible thing to waste, and then they play the music. This was that moment for us. <laughs> this was akin crescendos. to like the night of the opening night of Black Panther. This was game seven of the twenty sixteen finals. This was our moment because I saw endless memes, still shots. I didn't even see the video. I right. just saw endless memes, still shots photos. This is why they try to break us up. Because look what happens when we're united, when we don't let them divide us. Excuse me, let me not use they, them. I'm talking about them in terms of the power <laughs> structures that be. I'm not talking That's about anybody one. else. Yes, We'll talk about that on a later episode. But man, it was fascinating. And then I didn't even see the video and I was not prepared for the video. bro. When I saw the video, I was like, I'm not prepared. So number one, we have to talk about breakdown down what happened in this brawl. Apparently, what you see is a black worker who is working the riverfront, and he is having a conversation, a heated conversation, with a group of white people telling them they cannot park their boat in the same space. Pontoon Pontoon boat, where the ferry, the Harriet, is actually supposed to be parking. So it's, there's, there's a space for them to park, and then they don't have to park there. And so he's like, you're blocking the other larger fairies yeah, that have over 200 passengers. You block the Harriet. You, you can't the block Harriet. the Harriet. It's just it's very interesting to me. This is Montgomery, Alabama, okay? You can't block the Harriet. So he's telling them this. Apparently, they get upset. Some people say they called him the N-word. Some people say they swung on him, got physical with him. And the only thing I remember is this brother's one on three, and he throws his hat throws up in the, the air. Hat. Now, let me tell you, he throws it up and looks up at it. It was dramatic. He was like, this is his bat signal. This is Bobby Shmurda, you know, it's like all up in the air. I expect him to start dancing. I was literally like, oh, okay, well, he's about to dance. Like, this is what
0: it is. He said, oh, it's on.
1: And so apparently this was the clarion call because for some reason, this this white family assumed that they could jump on this black man who was simply doing his job and that they could make an example out of him With a whole bunch of black people watching and nobody was going to do anything.
0: Wow. The audacity.
1: Now, clearly, it seemed like they were inebriated. (laughs) It seemed like they had had a few too many. Yes. um, Putting it mildly. So I don't think they were thinking clearly and coherently. And then all of a sudden, it happens. (laughs) Out of- Everywhere and nowhere, the portals open. Someone <laughs> magically—I hear a voiceover while I'm watching the video. On your left,
0: that was one. Of and the then best all ones. of a sudden, yes.
1: And then all of a sudden, people come out of everywhere, and they're—it's very—it's quite violent. It was it, yeah, a little I mean, unsettling.
0: The sheer scale of it, the multitude of it, like black—the the Black Avengers assembled. It was amazing because it wasn't at first it was one other dude who came to help out and then, he was just trying to break it up he was just trying to break it up really but then i mean Aquaman. they kept getting a uh, getting aggressive aquamane jumped off the off the ferry swam across the river whatever it was and got up and con- got into the Took bro- his first shoes of off. All, I would be exhausted. I would stop halfway to float and rest, but he 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 sprinted in the water there. he pulled his Michael B Phelps and then got out and then there were just it it was a multitude of people there's no way to to uh, else to describe it and you had a ton another gang of black folks just watching and cheering video and, and shouting egging it and on video, yes, so I think for that reason it is one of the one of the big things that. Stuck out on social media was like this wasn't like a couple of people, this was a brawl. And then you have Mr. Chair, who people said clearly he was a deacon Ooh. of
1: some Baptist church because he pulled out that chair like he knew what he was doing. I'm, with I'm, it. I'm saying he it had was, was too. With now, let me just chair, tell bro. you as soon as as soon as he starts swinging the chair, I'm like, okay, bro, chill out, like chill out, that, calm down, like put the chair down. Man. But in in theory, it was hilarious because it was like this moment of it didn't feel like they were responding just to this family. It felt like it was a response to from 2023 all the way back to (laughs) 1619. It felt like it was literally that moment of utter frustration. We're sick of it. We're tired of y'all. And so people are asking the question, how did this happen? I'm actually saying, and this was the first thing I thought, oh, this could have been much worse. Like, yes, this was bad. But this could have been way worse than what it was. It could have been way more violent. It could have been way more serious physically. Mm-hmm. They really didn't do all that they could have done in that particular scenario. And when the chair came out, the guy was quickly detained. You know, people were like, no, you can't do that. You know, quickly detained, took the chair away from him. But it was just. The authorities were there and they were like, well, what you want us to I mean You're not going <laughs> to stop them? <I laughs> that, mean, was, you know? that
0: was one of the most interesting parts is when law enforcement came, uh, there was, a, there was a, a good few moments where they just stood back. One, they were outnumbered. Like yes. they weren't going to break it up with just who was there. But the other was like, who's the aggressor here? Who do we detain? All of that stuff. And it could have been way worse on a number of accounts. Number one, this is a riverfront. So everybody's in, like, shorts and sandals, and they didn't have weapons on them right, or, exactly. you know, anything else that could have been potentially lethal, right? And then it could have been way worse in if, if the police had come in and handled it differently. Right. And I'm not saying they did it flawlessly here, but... It could have very easily turned into another instance of police brutality against black people as they of walk course. in and assume well the white people must be in the right or something of like course. that, so we were all looking at that, and i th- I think we we dodged something there uh because it could have gotten really out of hand
1: well i'm I'm asking this question, jamar, what is his family thinking now now here's <laughs> I, I really need to. What is in your mind that makes you believe and makes you assume that you have the right to everything and you don't have to deal with the rules and Let, you don't have to listen. follow Let's talk about it. basic procedures. Let's talk about it. And just because it's you, you can beat someone up and walk calmly back to your pontoon boat as if nothing is going to happen to you. It was, and a lot of people were saying, oh, the the big thing, the big takeaway, especially in- yeah, well, this is Pastor Mike, especially in, you know, some black Christian conservative circles. Like, oh no, turn the other cheek, and and you know, Jesus says you're not supposed to do this to your enemies and all this. And I'm like, that that shouldn't be your first thought. Your first thought and explanation is this is the this is the colonization of the black Christian mind. The colonization of the black Christian mind automatically critiques black response to white wrong. So automatically says you're doing too much rather than saying, why did they think this was okay to physically jump out number and potentially allegedly use slurs against someone, a black man doing his job. And then why did they think there wasn't going to be someone who came to his defense to say, you cannot treat our people like that, even if we don't know who it is. So see that. So in some black Christian conservative circles are like, Oh, it made me so sad to see this. And I'm like, Is that the first thing that you think, or are you Mm -hmm. thinking what provoked, which you can clearly see what provoked? Because see, what happens on the flip side, when law enforcement guns us down, we say, what do we do to provoke them to do the action? Mm -hmm. But when we defend our people, they say, well, why didn't we, why did we not exercise restraint? That's the colonization of the black Christian mind. Another episode. We'll talk about that later. But that's so fascinating to me. Why do people think that's okay to respond in that way?
0: Well, first, I think you're making a super important point for all of us to hear, which is why do we critique the black response instead of looking at the white provocation? Exactly. Right? What incited the incident in the first place, which I think also played into this, which because it was it was very clear the black man wasn't doing anything wrong. He was doing, doing his, his job. job. And it was the white folks who were the instigators, the provocateurs, the belligerent folks. But then to your point on like what's in their mind, number one, with this particular group of people, I don't think they were thinking. But what was happening was a disposition to where this is our space. Everywhere we walk hmm. is our space, right? That's the thing hmm. that a lot of white people don't understand is a ramification of white supremacy and white-centeredness. It's not conscious most of the time. But it is an air that, when you enter a room, any space, it bends toward you. Hmm. That's the way it's set up, and that's the way it's designed. People are like, "Oh, well, no, I, I don't have any of that." Yeah, you do. I was just talking to uh, some some white guys, Southerners, thick accents, and um, they were talking. They're Christians. They're talking about a partnership they have with some churches in Uganda. Hmm. And they were talking about the fact that they were there, they're the only white guys, the only Mzungas in in that space. But even then, the deference. So we're talking a different continent, a different country, and them as white people walk into the space and the room shifts because even though they're the hyper minority, they're the only white people there, there's the perception more educated, wealthier, um, more powerful, we need to ingratiate ourselves to them in order to get some of what they have. So that is the sort of culture and the context that's happening even at the boat brawl. You can't tell us to move. Nobody can tell us to move, much less a black person. No. Not only can you not tell us to move, we're going to force our will on you because this is our space and you are here by our magnanimity our largesse, our grace. And the moment you step out of line, we're going to put you back in place. Let's
1: take a break because I want to come back and talk about some, some of the elements of this, both historically, because you know you're Mr. roots, so you're going to give us some history. <laughs> but I also want to talk about some of the cultural environments of what's happening within Montgomery and in the South as well that probably contributed to this brawl breaking out. We'll be right back on Pastor Mike.
0: pass the mic. We appreciate you.
1: Hey everybody, this is Tyler Burns with Pastor Mike, inviting you to join us for the Active Witness Challenge. You know here at The Witness, we love symbols. And the 1965 March on Selma was an activation of Christians who loved Jesus and also loved justice. They walked 54 miles for change, for civil rights, for truth, and for freedom. And we want to invite people all across the country to join us for an entire month, the month of September, as we walk, jog, run, swim, or cycle 54 miles wherever we are. Now, this serves two purposes. The obvious purpose, of course, is we are activating our faith for justice, but we are also raising money together for the crucial programs here at The Witness. You've enjoyed our podcast, our events, all the things that we offer here to encourage Black Christians to be free in soul and in body. We want you to join us. You can go to thewitnessfoundation.co forward slash AWC. And here's the awesome thing. You can join teams or even create your own team and encourage people together. Let me just put in a shameless plug. I have a team this year. You can look it up. It's called Feel the Burns. I think Jamar has a team, but don't worry about that. Join my team. But I have a team called Feel the Burns and I want you to join my team. Run or walk. I don't know what I might be walking. This this heat is serious. I might be walking, but run, walk, jog, cycle, swim with me as we commemorate the 1965 March on Selma. Remember, they walked so that we can run. So Jamar, what's interesting is I was hearing some conversation and commentary from one of our our, actually our city council members, a black woman in um, Escambia County, and she has a friend who's actually in Montgomery. And she shared some of what her friend in the council of Montgomery was sharing with her, which is what is a, a big problem there is becoming a massive problem everywhere, which is the city parks are understaffed and underfunded. Mm. And when city properties and parks are understaffed and underfunded, what happens is there are a lot of people, especially over the summer who flock to places like the riverfront to have fun, but it's much hotter than normal. They don't have adequate staffing and they haven't done the job of funding those spaces in order to protect and keep the peace but also in order to enforce what would be basic rules. So the interesting thing behind the scenes is that pontoon boat could have parked in other spaces. It just chose to park there. And really it's, it's a referendum on a couple of different things. Number one, the value that we have in shared communal spaces in our parks and in our cities, but also It's just a reminder. Another major part of this is probably the fact that it's so hot outside and Mm. that the earth is, you know, and that the earth is continually warming that made tempers inflare even more than Mm. what would have been. Mm. And so what's fascinating is apparently there are city council members in Montgomery, who have been trying to get better funding for these parks, have been trying to push for, you're, you're neglecting these public spaces. You're neglecting the riverfront. You're neglecting these things. And they've been trying to push, trying to push, trying to push. And others who are in power have been pushing them off and saying, we don't have money for that. We don't have time for that. Well, now you're in international news. <laughs> now I wonder, do you have time for this? Mm-hmm. Right. So isn't it so funny that even in our shared spaces, a lack of attention leads to the contribution of inflamed tension, a lack of support for workers. And think about this metaphor, a black man standing alone, enforcing something that he should have had much more support from the city.
0: Mm.
1: He's taking the brunt of this because he's having to literally fist fight to enforce a rule because he's been attacked verbally and physically And what an interesting metaphor of black people having to bear the burden of that which people will not pay attention to.
0: (laughs) First of all, something you said about the heat made me think about next summer. Like, what are we in for summer 2024 with climate change and the heat plus an election coming up? This is not regular heat, bro. Like, as we record this, it's triple digits. This is not
1: regular heat. And then that's not even heat index. That's right. not even humidity count, depending on where you're at. I mean, this is different. I walked outside yesterday for about 10 minutes and I was drenched.
0: Yep. Yep. yep.
1: You know, I'm from Florida. So it's like, it, you know, I'm used to heat, but this, I was like, whoa. It's another level. It is completely different. And there's no time where it's, it's subsiding all the But anyway, right, right. that's just a side thing that that's coloring a lot of what is this doing to our bodies? What is this doing to our collective faculties, our ability to make peace, our ability to not go off? You know, well, anyway. it's it's it's
0: it's it's salient because historically, like 1919's Red Summer, right? It's a reason why it was summer, and then we can even look at the the nineteen sixties and uprisings in Detroit and Watts, and those were summer incidents. So anyway, when you said that, I was like. Wow, we've got all that plus an election like? coming up that fall. It could be a very hot summer. Rico Suave will still be than out in <laughs> um, Shout
1: out to Ali Henny because Rico Suave describing forty five is absolutely brilliant. She says forever known as Rico Suave after the Georgia indictments. Anyway, continue.
0: So you remember Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us? Exactly. Yeah, she opens with this illustration of That's a community okay. that was being it was a white community that was being forced to desegregate a public pool i think it was and rather than do that they shut the pool down so it's very interesting in these public spaces especially like parks and rec type of thing where people are supposed to go and enjoy even though it's public there's an intimacy there in a in a way there's a contact and a proximity there and the reality is white people have never been good at sharing <laughs> As let me say, let me just flesh that out. No, please. Because go ahead. people are gonna go off. White people have never been good at sharing stuff they think is theirs. And there's so much historically that they've stamped as ours, even when it's stolen or hoarded, right? And so when I say white people, you know, other there's some white people, but as a group.
1: Man, it's past the mic. They they should know what's up.
0: Yeah, but you know <laughs> people clip stuff. That's fine.
1: This anyway, is past
0: the mic, man. You know how we get down. Whatever it has come to, oh we got to share schools, public parks, pools, streets, sidewalks, buildings, neighborhoods, a, whatever, a country. They would they would rather burn it to the ground yeah. than share it. But this is this is what I think the brawl really was in
1: this sign. And I want you to get into the historical idea of this. Is the idea that oh, this is our space, and I think the the broad no, this is not any more your space than ours. No, we built this thing. This is this what? It's Montgomery, dog. <laughs> like we're not talking. <laughs> we're not talking about West Virginia. We're not talking about Idaho. This is not South South or North Dakota. This is Montgomery, Alabama. We go deep here. What, what are you talking about? Like, this is not, you don't do this here. Are you serious? Are you not from here? Are you not familiar? But it's also a reminder, no, this isn't. And it, it is so fascinating, the level of frustration that was enacted in that brawl. And it really honestly brought tears to my eyes because I thought about how much each of those people have had to go through in their lives. And how much there was an automatic reaction that says, oh, no, you're not going to do this in plain view when we have numbers. Even if we didn't have numbers, we still fight. Mm-hmm. But we're definitely not going to do this. And you think about how, what is the reaction when you push a group of people to the brink for centuries? For centuries, for centuries for centuries. And you just consistently in in churches, in financial institutions, in healthcare, in education. And then you say, oh, you shouldn't have responded like that. And we say, stop. Like, stop doing this to us. This is our space as much as it is your space. And it really brought tears to my eyes because I thought about, this is the fruit of what was sown. White supremacy sows these seeds And then reaps the fruit of confusion and division and chaos and blames it on us. So when a riot happens afterwards, because you won't bring a a common sense indictment against a law enforcement officer, you just put him on a paid administrative leave. And you're like, oh, you're rioting. You sow the seed of what it's going to be because you will not listen to the people who you consistently disenfranchise.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You
1: consistently disenfranchise a group of people and expect them to just take it. And this gets us into history. When you think about this, Jamar, you think about armed resistance, nonviolent resistance,
0: violent resistance, revolts, right? One of the things that frustrated me in the responses is it wasn't a lot of people, but it was enough to, to provoke a response was the back to that old trope. This isn't your grandmother's civil rights movement. <laughs> Can we dead that? Like, just never say that again. Um, Because the implication is, well, they weren't, they weren't willing to, to fight back. They were passive. They they let folks walk all over them, which is the furthest thing from reality because the reality is the only reason you're on social media saying that is because they did resist right. and they did stand up and they did uh, open the way for us today to have more freedoms, more opportunities than in the past at great cost, right? If we pop off at the mouth today, or even if we get into a physical altercation we might lose our job, we might yeah, get jailed. Absolutely. It was very likely not that long ago that if you resisted or retaliated in those ways or or even in smaller ways, hello, Emmett Till, yeah. you could end up dead, right? So even verbally. Even verbally, right? Just saying no or just saying something back. Or saying not refusing to say sir to somebody who called you boy or insisting that they call you Mr. or ma'am or whatever it might be, right? So it's just dumb. It's it's a completely a historical statement that betrays the fact that they don't actually know what not only the civil rights movement was about but the broader f- b- black freedom struggle was about. So that's one thing. The other thing is I struggled with this too, not really struggled, but I was just thinking about it, right? Because I had just written about MLK's commitment to nonviolence, which has really overshadowed our memory of the black freedom struggle. like Mm -hmm. That has become the one tactic, the one philosophy, right? right? Now, granted, one could argue it was incredibly successful because in a matter of 10 to 13 years-ish, however you want to count the civil rights movement, they basically dismantled the legal structure of Jim Crow segregation that had stood for nearly a century since the Civil War. So, in terms of impact... Even if it was, even if you're just looking at like the civil rights, that's a monumental thing. And you can argue that it was nonviolent resistance that really helped essentially white liberals get on board, right? So let me say
1: this about that though. I I want people to understand that it's not all based in a moral stance. Yes, it is a moral stance, but it is also a tactic and a strategy. And it was a tactic and a strategy it was designed to provoke the powers that be to inflict pain on them in front of cameras. So it was strategic in the sense. And I think people are making it purely moral. And this is a gambit that King was running that, Oh no, they're going to go and attack us. Once we provoke them, they're going to attack us. And when they attack us, they're going to be in front of a bank of cameras and America is going to see them attacking us and know who they really are.
0: Yes. So, there's degrees to this whole nonviolence thing, which is what you're getting to. Um, Number one, it was a tactic that people were trained in and it was planned, right? We're going to have this demonstration on this date and we're going to, you know, confront this issue or this group of people, right? And the nonviolent tactic was designed to highlight the brutality that was inflicted upon Black people in the Jim Crow South. And so it was designed to put up contrasts and extremes. Here are these nonviolent black protesters faced with guns, batons, right. riot gear, whatever it is. And you see, you literally demonstrate the moral implications of racial segregation and repression, right? So as a tactic, that's what it was designed for. But in terms of degrees, there are a lot of people who would sign on to the tactic of it, but wouldn't sign on to nonviolence as a way of life. Exactly. MLK did eventually, uh, early in his activism. He, He had guns and it was self-defense and all that kind of thing. Later on, and there's a specific incident that, that was really striking to me that not a lot of people know about, but he was speaking at an event and there's a white neo-Nazi in the audience. And we know this because he gave an interview afterward. He, he spilled all the beans about what he was doing there. He, he wanted to assault King, which he did. King's on stage. This white supremacist goes up on stage and starts punching MLK starts beating him now in that instance anybody would say self-defense you like punch back you know right. push him off King took it I mean he covered up a little bit but he took it and then afterwards you know his security's getting this guy off him and everything afterwards he sits down yeah, he and says don't don't press charges bring him here let me talk to him yeah it didn't work I mean, the guy continued to be hateful toward him, but that was King's philosophical commitment to nonviolence. We mistake that for that's the only way we can struggle and resist. That is
1: the pure way to struggle and resist. And the other ways are too confrontational, too provocative. But I think this, and and I want you to say more about history, but I think this gets into our degrees of what we consider to be a reasonable response to centuries of injustice. Hmm. And so when we think about this, I think a lot of people just assume, oh, that's not a reasonable response, and they're not parsing through the ethics of what a reasonable response really means. So if someone comes up to me and literally attacks me in front of my family, some people say, oh, just don't do anything. No, that's not, that's not what it means. It means I'm not going to return in kind if someone were to punch me and walk away. I'm not going to go find them, go inflict harm on them or their family or anything. That would be an unreasonable response. They have left the situation. But in the situation where it's protecting me and my family, I'm going to protect my family. Well, break down
0: break down the, the biblical passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth.
1: I think, and, and you know what's so funny about that is, I think a lot of people see the difference between, and can't parse through the difference between, self-defense and vengeance.
0: Mm-hmm. There you
1: go. Because there's a difference. So yes, the infliction of vengeance is wrong. Yes, the in, that's wrong. Like we clearly love your enemies, do good to those who despitefully use you.
0: Is mine, says vengeance
1: is mine, says the Lord. Leave space for wrath. You know, I will repay. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So we don't inflict harm on people out of turn and out of hand, even though we know that they have done wrong to us even though we know we don't go and inflict harm on law enforcement. We don't go and seek them out and do that. Mm -hmm. That's not what we do. But in the case of someone literally attacking our bodies, there's plenty of ethical and and scriptural support for us standing against someone inflicting harm on the image of God in us. Mm. Because the problem is you will start to see yourself as though you don't have the image of God in your body. My Lord. And you do. So I'm not going to allow you to harm the image of God in me. Mm. I'm going to stand up and say, no, the image of God is precious. And I value not, and this is the, this is the trick, black Christian, black Christians. Listen, the, the challenge is we start to say, oh, we talk about the image of God in others and we don't acknowledge it in ourselves.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And so we subtly value theirs more than ours because we won't defend and we won't, we won't stand against the marring of the image of God in our own bodies. Yeah. We've been taught not to do that. We've been taught we're not worth that.
0: And, and the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing was to guard against what you said, vengeance. vengeance. Because it was about preventing a disproportionate response. Exactly. So the, the idea was if somebody takes your eye, you don't take both of theirs. Exactly. You take one. Take one. Somebody knocks out your tooth. You don't punch out all their teeth. You take one. It's a proportionate you don't then response. Then torture them. Yeah. Right, right, right. So anyway, you know that 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 is often misunderstood as a verse in in, in its context. But then to go back to the historical part, armed self defense was. And is, I would say, the vast majority of Black people's stance, even if they wouldn't call it that. But in, as we, as we look at the Black freedom struggle, there's a whole philosophy of armed self defense, um, or self defense in general, which is simply to say, if the Klan is threatening you and your family, you have the right to defend yourself. You, so going all the way back, Ida B. Wells Barnett. A Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home and it should be used for that protection, which the law refuses to give. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. And and I think, you know, it's it's fascinating because we see the layers of this, right? All of this, the, the, hopefully the encouragement is don't make this simplistic, right? Let's not make this simplistic of don't do this. Don't do that. No, we know we have a weird gun culture in America that promotes the the overuse of large weapons that could should be used for hunting or other things, war. Mm. (laughs) And we start to, you know, regionally or, or locally, domestically carry these around. And then what happens? We have armed incidents and conflicts and mass shootings. Yes, we know that, but there's also the reality that, no, we need to be prepared to defend our families. Right. So personally, I don't own a gun. Some people decide, Oh, as a result of that, I do. Mm -hmm. One day I may change and say, Yeah, I may want to have a weapon just because I'm gone a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things that you think about in that it's a conversation of ethics. Yes, yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: But I think, you know, it's it's so fascinating, man, that we have really convinced ourselves that somehow, and this is where the radical and the militant. It is not that oh yeah this is I agree with everything that they say I'm like I get
0: why they yeah. say what they say <laughs> I see the No, I, I
1: see the point. Uh-huh. I see the point because literally you will have people that allow people to harm them and harm their families and say oh it's fine. No it is not fine. The image of God is on the inside of you. Mm. No, you don't get to just harm us. Mm. And I think you know it's it brings back to mind this uh, story in the King doc, the King biography. Have mm-hmm. you have you read the King biography? The opening That's story <laughs> where uh, Daddy King they're they're telling the the biography, the past of Daddy King, where he's a nine year old boy, ten year old boy. He gets beat up by this mill owner because he wouldn't go and get water for mm-hmm. his his workers, and then his mom says, "Who did this to you?" She goes back and beats up. The mill owner in front of the other guys and says, "You can do whatever you want to me, but you do not touch my son." And people like, "Wow, I can't believe!" And you know, you know, when I was listening to it, um, on Audible, I was like, "You know what? I don't know if I would do that." And then I was thinking in my head, she wasn't wrong; she defended her son.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He was wrong. And automatically, I'm thinking, wow, she beat him up. That's heavy. No, that's probably what you should do. And <laughs> a, you know, just immediately, right. you've, been, you've been colonized into thinking like, oh, snap, you can't defend yourself. You can't. No, you probably
0: should do and that. And the flip side of that is the way we view white violence. Exactly. Because white violence is almost always somehow justified. So we can think of the big examples, right? Like the Revolutionary War, um, any kind of uh, colonization attempts, right? My man said, give me liberty or give me death. And we valorize that. We celebrate that every 4th of July, right? Like this is a good kind of violence. We can look at even modern wars and conflicts, right?
1: They even say, oh, it's religious freedom. They're going to fight for their religious rights to worship God.
0: Absolutely. And then you can look at the sort of uh, individual or, or micro examples of, it could be a lynching. Well, this black person didn't do this, this mill owner that you're talking about, he this black boy refused to do what I, a white man, told him to do. And therefore, I was justified in violence. So there's a couple things here. Number one, white supremacy always requires violence to maintain its hmm. supremacy. Hmm. Uh this is one of the things that I talk about in my Color of Compromise book talk and and why confronting racism and white supremacy is so serious because at the end of the day it will always impact physical bodies it will always result yes. in physical violence always um and then the other part of it is how we view like you're saying when we don't defend ourselves, that's in a way denigrating the image of God in ourselves because we won't have the proper boundaries, right? Um, and then on the flip side, it is white folks thinking that they alone have the image of God or have a superior image of God yeah. that is then justified in doing whatever. It's, it's, it's dominion exercised not over the earth, mm. but over each other. Oof. So...
1: That's good. That's good. Yeah. And so I'm not saying we walk around with chairs. <laughs> I'm not Some saying we keep that we keep that there. chair with the scope on. Yeah, I
0: was going to say somebody had the laser scope, somebody yeah. had a chair holster.
1: Chair jitsu, like I'm not saying I'm not saying we become chair jitsu black belts. I'm just saying I think it's okay for us to defend ourselves if people are especially defend others as well if people are intent to harm them without any purpose.
0: Mess around and find out.
1: Run up and get (laughs) Donna.